I'm Rachel Gillette, your host today, and we are coming to you from Utrecht University. Today's episode is serious. We look behind the scenes at Putin's invasion of Ukraine. We sit with experts, with residents, and we discuss the history of Ukraine's independence. We discuss the motivations for Putin's invasion, and we look at media coverage of the conflict, including issues of race, national identity, and European uh, inclusion. And we are so grateful to our experts for sitting with us and educating us all on a timely and terrible issue. We stand in solidarity with the Ukrainian people and we invite you to look at our website for further information and for links to ways in which you can help. I'm Rachel Gillette. I'm a historian of France and the French Empire. Uh, and I have invited you to this podcast to share your insights and your expertise on Ukraine with our listeners, with our students who've asked for this at this terrible and complex time. And I really value your time here and I value your expertise and I value the fact that you can help us unpack the complexities of the situation um, for everybody who's going to listen to this. So I will turn now to each of you and ask you to introduce yourself. I'll begin with Olha. Hello, my name is Olga Klemenko. I'm a research associate with Holodomor Research and Education Consortium um, of the Canadian Institute of Ukrainian Studies, affiliated with the University of Alberta. Our office is actually in Toronto, but I am now in Kiev because I originally came from Kiev. Uh, I came here because of the family emergency and I'm still staying here. So. Um, my background, I studied history, uh, um, uh, the origins of Ukrainians, origins of Kyiv, urbanization of Kyiv, then I switched to more kind of political science topics like civil society democratization in Ukraine. So what's going on now, you know, especially this, um, the manipulation of the historical narrative by Putin to justify the invasion and the centrality of Kiev to all his obsession, you know, with, um, you know, the origins of the great Russian empire belong to the topics that I studied in, in some form throughout my career. My name is John. I'm a PhD candidate in the Department of History at Michigan State University. And I was in Kiev up until late January this year on a Fulbright grant. Uh, and I was evacuated out of Ukraine in late January, where I relocated to Warsaw, Poland. And I am now working with refugees of the war here in Poland. And um, although I am a scholar of, you know, uh, of Soviet Ukraine, uh, I work on the history of famines, multiple famines in the history of Ukraine, not only the 1932-33 Holodomor, but also the post-war 1946-47 famine as well. And my research is on the aftermath of famine and the effects that continue to linger well after these events pass. Um, and we are now seeing some of these effects of war play out in real time, or at least I am uh, while I'm here in Poland. So that's, uh, that's my quick introduction. I'm still in Poland for the time being, um, but in normal times, I'm just a, a lonely academic that's trying to complete a dissertation. Hello, I'm Karl Berkhoff. I'm a historian of Ukraine and Eastern Europe in the Holocaust. I've been engaged with Ukraine for three decades. I speak the language. I wrote a book on the Nazi occupation uh, of Ukraine. I'm a senior researcher at the NIAD Institute for War, Holocaust and Genocide Studies in Amsterdam. And there I am also a co-director of the European Holocaust Research Infrastructure. Hey, uh, hello everybody. I'm uh, Gert-Jan Plet. I'm a cultural anthropologist. Uh, I've been working in uh, Siberia Altai Republic uh, since 2009 for 14 years, where I study how heritage uh, is both being used by the Kremlin um, to create uh, specific types of citizenships, uh, but also how bottom-up heritage and history is being used uh, to subtly uh, challenge uh, the central the central state. Uh, and I especially look at uh, indigenous populations um, in uh, in Siberia. I mean, hearing these introductions. Uh, just poses the unavoidable question, how is it as a scholar to see the things that you study uh, 
taking such a, a, a terrible turn and, and having such real human consequences. Yes, it's a very special uh, moment, to put it mildly. And of course, I have friends and colleagues in Kiev or who may have left already and in Lviv. So it's a very difficult time. Um, I've been in touch and in the Erie project, we have engaged in a outreach to those Holocaust scholars in Ukraine that we know about. And that was very nice to have, to, the, to know that you're actually doing something and uh, that was appreciated. But it remains extremely painful for me. Uh, I have some friends who are there and you don't know if they're going to live and if the city that they live in is going to be there. I mean, this is the situation. It's extremely worrisome. I wonder sometimes, will I ever be in Kiev again? I mean, it's, it's really, everything is upside down. It's hard for me to talk about it because there is so much, you know, from historical perspective, I managed to get access to CNN here, so it's impressive how many Ukrainians speak very good English and, you know, how, how good they are at representing what's going on in the country. And basically, there were people who were sure that the invasion is coming, it's going to be big, that Putin is going to, you know, that Kiev is the primary target. And I shared this with one of my friends, academic, back in Toronto. <laughs> he said, like, this is insane. Like, why are you even spreading things like that? And people were in denial. And I remember somebody told me, oh, you know, we should just see and understand what's going on. And I said, what is not clear? Like, look at the map. He's going for Kiev. And um, there is this surrealism, you know, between Ukrainians not believing in what is going on, that, you know, the Chechen, uh, the, the Chechen scenario, the serious scenario, the Donetsk, Lugansk scenario is possible in Ukraine. You know, some people can say it's because of the imperial ambitions. Yes, you know, I think this is what the opinion that he presents to the world. But uh, actually, it's about, you know, destroying the legacy of the Maidan and destroying the legacy and everything that Ukrainians created in the last eight years, showing that, you know, Ukraine is not Russia. Ukraine is an independent state. Ukraine does have an army. Civil society supports the army and the independence of Ukraine. And because I was born in Kiev, because I studied Kiev, and, you know, you go all through this again and again, you know, Strange. And then being in the middle of this, it's surreal because I, you know, I know what is going on, but every day I wake up and it still feels as if it's somewhere in the movie and I am not kind of in the middle of it. So it's, it's, a, it's a strange, strange feeling for me. I, I can't even imagine. And I, when you say Putin is trying to destroy the Maidan, this is another Syria, this is another Chechen, the signs were on the wall. What were those signs for me as a non-Ukraine specialist? Uh, Hertian, I saw you nodding. What? No, um, I was nodding uh, because it's a very interesting perspective that, of course, o Olya uh, uh, brings. Um, I, I'm still, I don't know, I don't, I'm not in denial anymore, but I didn't see this uh, coming after 14 years working in, in Russia. Uh, for yeah, and what my perspective here is is that I'm still very worried. Uh, I'm very worried about my my colleagues and friends who, without a doubt, did, do not support uh, this war. Um, so um, I didn't see this coming. And in all honesty, if, if Putin once compared himself to a rat that is very good at surviving, um, so for I always read Putin as a person that uh, uh, would do everything for political survival. And um, um, I never ex never saw this coming. Um, so uh, I agree with what Olya says with the, um, the historical narratives that he's obsessed with. Uh, it's also not strange that he's obsessed with that because uh, the old minister of culture, Vladimir Medinsky, uh, is now in the inner circle of him. He's really ultra-right and really is promoting this, this hardcore narrative. But I never thought that, that this would be the reason why, why, why he would uh, invade. I think I can say in all honesty that I, I saw it coming because there were these warnings uh, from the 
Americans uh, and reports of these troops being assembled there. And they were in a position that either meant move forward or go back. And uh, I, over the last years, I took up the habit of assuming the worst to come from Putin. And that was actually quite useful. Um, so it's, it's a dictator. You have to believe what he says. Uh, of course, we all know there's a lot of lies, but there's a whole lot of sincerity as well. I mean, look at him on television. It was not so difficult to see there's real anger and, and drive. Uh, it's not just cynicism. And the notion that the Ukrainians needed to be put back in their place and actually uh, turned back into Russians... I mean, that was genuinely felt. He said so last year. The question for me uh, until recently was, is it still okay for him to then destroy a city that supposedly is the cradle of Russia, uh, the buildings? And let's, let's leave aside for a moment the inhabitants. I think that's possible. I mean, it has been done before. Uh, uh, in 1941, Stalin put all these bombs there that to a large extent, exploded um, as a policy of scorched earth. And had the Germans moved further east, he would have done the same to Moscow, by the way. It was not necessarily purely an anti-Ukrainian thing. Um, now, I'm not saying that Putin avidly studied this example, but I, knowing that, it's not entirely unthinkable anymore. So it maybe I somewhat benefited from my historical uh study of all these things um genocide studies also is maybe sometimes a bit more alert to the early signs uh but of course we all may make mistakes but i i i i must say that when this actually began i i had expected it and i have heard from uh on the matter of not expecting it it's very interesting that indeed my impression is that most ukrainians in my circle, sort of, did not really expect it. I heard from a woman who actually started making phone calls and reaching out in other ways, and she says, I was not really believed. And she saw almost an analogy to warnings that were given to Jews during the Holocaust. You know, this is real. Uh, now, I'm not going to say this is totally comparable, of course, but that was to her... That came to her mind, you know, oh, no, again, this lack of uh, viv uh, vigilance, you know, and, and now, now it's too late for some of these people. They're struck. They're stuck in there. So this I actually want to pick up on because it does bring us to the historical narratives. Uh, Olga, you mentioned this and you said Putin is hammering on these historical narratives and I had read a comment by a scholar, Laureen Crump, and she says, you know, maybe this is the same speech you were referencing, Karel, that uh, Putin uh, is hearkening back to the Russian Empire and the Kievan Rus. And so he's claiming Kievan Ukraine as, as Russian. And then I also saw a piece in history today that took to, went as far back as Catherine the Great and said, you know, she, she parades through these lands and, and claims them as Russian. Um, is this part of what's going on? Is Putin cynically kind of mobilizing these narratives? And yeah, how, what, uh, what is the historical narrative here? Uh, Karel, maybe you could uh, begin this and then, um, yeah, anybody who feels they need to elaborate uh, and educate me further. That would be great. I think Putin is not cynical about what he says about Ukrainian identity. I mean, it's generally felt, he said it, this is a single per people, uh, almost artificially separated. Uh, they should be in one single country. I mean, this is a real conviction of his. And uh, uh, we all talk about, always about the bad effect he fears from a democratic Ukraine, but it's it's not it's even more than that. This country should not even be independent. It's it's not not good enough. So uh, in that sense he's even more radical than the Soviet leadership, which always acknowledged uh, the existence of a Soviet Republic with its own education system that might diverge a little bit. Uh, I mean this is going 
even further back to a time when uh, the rulers of Russia uh, essentially denied the right of uh, those who called themselves Ukrainian to uh, have some kind of self-determination. I actually listened to Putin's speech live, and then in Kiev, if you have a satellite antenna, you can watch Russian TV. So that's what I was doing here, watching CNN and Russian TV and taking, you know, Ukrainian news on Twitter and Facebook. So when they started evacuating people from the LNR, LNR, I could tell that this was where he was going to make a move, but how it was not entirely clear. So then he said, oh, you know, it's just because uh, there was this narrative that there is a genocide of people of DNR, LNR in, in, in the Donbass, and this is why Russia has to step in. So we thought, okay, this is what is going to happen. Then there was a recognition of independence. And um, if you could see, it was basically some of the things were pre-taped and showed later. And then, then he had this meeting with the Security Council, and he was like taking advice from his advisors what he should do. And he's like, I'll go, I retreat, you know, in my chambers and consider all of that. And literally, I think it was less than three hours later, then he appeared live and he gave this hour long speech. And I think it was pre-recorded. It was, you know, the text was written in advance because you cannot produce anything like that an hour long with that um, conviction. There's so much hatred towards Ukraine. And if you listen to that, like by the middle of the speech, I knew that, you know, it will be an outright war. And basically the whole point, even though he was trying to pull all this narrative, that, you know, there was this beautiful Russian empire, Ukraine is like an illegitimate child. They didn't deserve it. It's statehood. They just got it by accident because there are some negligent leaders uh, signed some document. And, you know, there was this beautiful industry, beautiful land, beautiful south, and Ukraine mishandled all of that. So that's why it has to be reined in. So the only message that came from that, that Putin hates Ukraine. Ukraine cannot exist. And I remember I was like so overwhelmed and I tweeted at the moment that, you know, it shows that only one can survive, Putin or Ukraine. You know, we cannot have Putin and Ukraine coexist because it was so forceful. Even in the last two weeks, the narrative has changed. First, it was, you know, the, the genocide of the people of the Donbass. Then it was, uh, you know, Ukrainian Nazis. In the last week, they're pushing this uh, nonsense about biological laboratories on the territory of Ukraine, and they would fall in the hands of terrorists, and how the U.S. basically sponsored these um, biological labs. And then the <clears throat> Kremlin, one of the Kremlin spokespeople, I think the Ministry of Foreign Affairs spokesperson Zaharova came out, and he gave a speech for half an hour about that. People understand that it means that Putin is likely to use the biological weapon and blame it on Ukrainians. But the fact that the change between the great Russian empire and biological laboratories, it means that he doesn't care. All these narratives are created for internal consumption. And trust me, there are so many people in Russia who buy this. It's all created for internal consumption, somewhat for people who still believe, you know, in evil West, in evil Western imperialism and, you know, Putin is the face of the liberation of suppressed nations. But, um, you know, I just, I think we can monitor what he says just in terms of trying to predict what is his next move. Because then they were uh, on, the, on the TV uh, for, for a few days saying that it's so hard on the Russian military because they are really trying to protect the civilians. They're fighting the Nazis, but the civilians do not understand that, you know, they're being rescued. So Russia, the advance is so slow, not because they're incompetent and because Ukrainians fighting back with whatever they can, but it's because they were so nice to civilians. But now, since the civilians do not appreciate how nice they were, they might resort to other measures. And then there were these negotiations in the water field where they were saying, oh, you know, now there will be negotiations. And I say negotiations is just the justification for the next stage. Because then he says, you know, I try to be nice to civilians, but we see we came to save this Russian-speaking people in Kharkiv. 
And look what they do. They fight. This is really important because I've seen this word genocide and Nazis thrown around a lot in the the media coverage. And and, and as a scholar of uh, genocide, Carol, you mentioned for a scholar of genocide, this is particularly uh, your alert to this, but I've seen it being deployed also by the Russians. What is going on here? Like, what is this genocide Nazi stuff? Yes, the word genocide is used a lot in uh, Russian state media and by intellectuals. And there is a real anger, I guess fear also, of uh, Russian speakers being uh, less privileged than they used to be. I mean, this creates a great deal of resentment. And to make it a bit more stronger, this argument, then the word genocide is added on. I don't know if they always mean killing. I, I, I don't think so. But it is a useful term, as it is all over the world, to get somebody's attention. Um, nowadays, Ukrainians are also starting to say it, with far more justification, by the way. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's really uh, so popular these days to call something genocide because uh, people assume that otherwise people will not listen. I think this term is now becoming almost meaningless. It has a certain meaning in legal, uh, in a legal sense, of course, but in, in popular usage and state propaganda usage, it's so big now that I sometimes wonder to what extent the Russian media consumer even, even pays any more attention. But nevertheless, it's, it's, it's hammered home all the time. There is this massive campaign to eliminate, in various ways, Russians, Russian speakers. And it's always sometimes left a little bit unclear. Who do you actually mean? Russian speakers or Russians? And that becomes very convoluted because, of course, they started handing out Russian passports. Then suddenly they're real, even more Russian than they were already supposedly. Uh, so they need to be protected, and so on. Uh, I just want to echo some some points. We've we've skipped over, in my opinion, some very crucial context historically uh, that that helps, I think, understand questions about empire and what and what Carl is rightfully saying about genocide. And you know, I hope that he'll be able. He wrote a great book, Harvest of Despair, about the Nazi occupation, which um, fits into this narrative in the Soviet period when we get there. Um, and also this speaks to, to Olya's point, too, about, um, you know, what's going on in Luhansk and Donetsk. And I think that the word genocide, if you, if you step on Twitter right now, academic Twitter, you'll see a, a barrage of people debating whether what's happening right now is genocide or not. And I agree that it, it, this term is somewhat becoming less and less um, useful if we keep throwing it around in the ways that we're doing. It has a legal context, absolutely. Um, but it's also, I think, crucial to understand from Putin's point of view that this is also a false flag term for him to be able to thrust this into the propaganda that he's using, right? Um, and this started with him originally saying that Ukrainians were committing genocide against Russian speakers and Russian living individuals in the Eastern territories in the, the Donbass. Um, and not that we can take this genocide claim all the way back in history. I mean, we can certainly talk about this in the 1930s and 1940s in the Soviet period, but even before this, uh, we have to go back to, to this Russian assertion that they, ha they have some kind of claim over the Ukrainians and therefore protecting them. And we can go back, really, this starts in kind of the 800s, the ninth century, and um, we can get back to some of the things that, you know, Olya was talking about with Kiev and Rus and who belongs, who it really belongs to, right? This is formed in Kiev and there's a lot of history in between there. Um, you can jump forward to 1569 with the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, where the Catholic you know, elites essentially start to oppress those who are practicing Orthodox Christianity, right? And this has to do with the Cossacks in Ukraine, right? Some true Ukrainians that have a problem with this. And this leads to the Treaty of Pereslav with the Russians, who this is interpreted differently, but actually submit themselves uh, under Russian rule and protection against these kind of Catholic elites that are persecuting them, right? And the Russians have since that time used this kind of narrative to say, look, we are saving these people under us. And these narratives, while different in 2022 and different in 2014 and 2004 and you know earlier than those contexts that I'm talking about now, there's a longer trajectory here 
of using these narratives of saving people, right? We can say saving in quotes because this is a kind of propaganda that uh, Putin has really employed recently um, in, you know, in his rhetoric on history. And, and let's get one thing clear. He's a president, not a historian. Um, and we need to dissect those speeches in, in, in greater detail, of course. But I just want to echo some of these points that Carl and Oya have said of like, you know, these genocide claims are not just new. Um, in fact, 2022 is not the first time that these types of things have been echoed. Uh, and I think Yutan wants to, to make a point on that as well. And I'll let him, you know, have, have some say. But I just want to say that historical context here does matter, even though these are different situations, right? This isn't World War II, um, but there's definitely a narrative of the Soviets conquering Nazis that's at play here. And um, you can see some of the same type of rhetoric being employed. It's a different situation, of course. And we can't say that, um, this is World War II, or for that matter, that even Putin's trying to reestablish the Soviet Union, which is not what he's doing either. This is That's a completely different entity, right? Um, made up of different republics. And as Carl mentioned earlier, there was some recognition of Ukrainianness, Ukrainization, right? Kornization that happens in the 1920s and 1930s. And we can talk about that too. But to this point, I just want to say that I think this genocide claim that Putin's using was a major false flag operation to draw the attention and, and, and justifying what he's doing. Um, troops have been building on the border since 2021 in the spring. Um, and for anyone who's you know followed this closely, I, I mean, I, I applaud Carl for, uh, Carol for predicting that this would happen. I certainly did not, but I'm not surprised because anyone who's paid attention to what's been happening, this didn't start on the 24th either. Bombs were not the first instance of this war. This started in 2014, really, um, you know, and what really started as a firstly a student revolution on Maidan um, and grew rapidly from there. Right. Uh, and these things, these things have the context that I just wanted to point out clearly and remind us that, um, you know, history is moving quickly right now, for lack of better term. Uh, and we need to we need to just kind of remind ourselves that um, it seems like, at least for me, months already since the 24th hit, uh, just with how chaotic things have been. But uh, Ukrainians will also remember that this has been going on for eight years, over eight years now, and these yeah. false flag that have been in place um, are, are, are not new. And so I just, I, yeah, I wanted to jump in there and make that point clear. Yeah, and, and that's also a point that I want to make. If you read uh, Putin's uh, 2014 speech after the annexation of Crimea, that he his address that he delivered to both uh, chambers of parliament, it's the same themes, the same historical narratives were being introduced there. This whole narrative of Prince Vladimir, the old Rus, uh, Prince Vladimir that adopted Christianity, the conservative values of the of the new Russia. This has been going on since uh, 2014. Um, and 2014 is, is, is an interesting date for a first reason. It's when Vladimir Medinsky became Minister of Culture, and he's a historian. So uh, he's a, what I would say a bad historian, but he's now very close in the inner circle of Putin. So maybe Putin is not a historian, but he has historians around his that legitimize his action. Um, and um, one of the interesting things that both Olya and, and, and John were saying is this flag, false flag operation. Um, I would also like to add some historical detail that doesn't go back to the, the 18th and 19th century, but that goes back to the 1990s. Um, and in the 1990s, we shouldn't forget that uh, Russia, we're always talking about NATO, NATO, NATO. But one of the things that uh, we did as, as Europe and the West in the 1990s is we completely pillaged the economy of the former Soviet Union. Uh, and there was nothing left anymore. Uh, we sold all the factories for parts. parts. We let everything to the oligarchs. Um, and one of the things that, that Putin was able to do in, in, in 2000s is that he was to recreate this, this despair, this big crisis that, 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 that happened in the 1990s. And he's banking on, on that for quite a long time. And you see in the 2000s that he's really able to... Uh, get a lot of political legitimacy because of his new modernization campaign and modernizing the economy. But in 2008, after the, polit of the, after the economic crisis and the ruble crisis of 2012, you see this whole economic system collapsing. And that's what I've witnessed in, in, in Siberia from, from one time to the other. The, the ruble was worthless. People weren't able to buy anything anymore. Um, and you kind of see around this period of this ruble crisis, a culture war starting. Um, and this, this heats up this culture and constantly heats up, heats up, heats up, heats up, heats up. And, and for me, this war is just, it, it reminds me a lot about the stagnation under Brezhnev. It, it, when they went to, uh, when the Soviets went to, to, to Afghanistan, they needed, a, they needed something to rally around the fly, a flag. 
And that's what I'm very afraid of, actually, uh, because um, uh, this war is not going to go well. But what we also need to remember from Afghanistan, this war didn't last three weeks. This war uh, lasted ages. A lot of people died. And it ended up in a very violent collapse of the of the of the Soviet Union. So for me, I'm I'm very very skeptical of what is going on here. For me, this whole thing of the war, the whole messaging is very much not focused at the West, but it's very much focused at internally at the, at the Russian people themselves. And I think it's it's all about uh, the regime survival. And uh, yeah, I, I say it again: Putin compared himself to a rat. If you put a rat in a corner, it can become very violent. Um, and this is uh, very troublesome for uh, all Russia's neighbors, but also the inhabitants of, of Russia. In Ukrainian history, this is in, in some ways, and I am almost hesitant to say it, it, it's almost a very good period because, one, never before have Ukrainians been more popular in the world. I mean, Ukrainians were never really popular. There has always has been this stigma... Uh, are they not really anti-Semitic? Uh, who are they going to kill? Um, and to me, this shift has been enormously pleasing. Uh, and uh, I know that Ukrainians know it. And this is not going to be just gone. So that's one. And the other, of course, is the immense sense of solidarity that Ukrainians now feel who knows it's, how it's going to end but at the moment we have this tremendous national consolidation and i'm certainly not in favor of nationalism by the way but ukraine has so many regions that maybe didn't really encounter each other and this is going to be a pivotal moment in ukrainian history for many reasons and one of them also is this encounter of people moving from donetsk or or kharkiv to say uh, Lviv and seeing the life there and so on and then uh, thirdly this is all led by a president of Jewish descent which I guess in some ways helps explain the global appeal of their struggle because it's it's sort of now has the seal of approval if it were a Ukrainian nationalist let's say Poroshenko it would have been less appealing to some people, to many people, I fear. Uh, you have here a person who is one of Jewish descent and second, extremely gifted in um, telling the story in ways that we, we can grasp immediately. You look at his selfies, it's just astonishing. So in that sense, uh, Ukraine is, is somewhat lucky. Uh, uh, and whatever, however this is going to end, I think the after effects are going to be still somewhat positive for them. I hope. I mean, this is what I'm trying to say to myself uh, also. Although, of course, on the other hand, I'm terribly afraid of how how many people are going to die uh, and what is going to happen. But I, I, I just wanted to insert this because uh, in a way I'm sort of annoyed that we have to talk about what Putin thinks. We have to think also about these millions of people who are trying to save their language, their culture, and their way of living together with fellow Europeans. I mean, isn't that a great story? I mean, it's it has been astonishing. And, and I think amid the horror, Olga said as well, that the number of Ukrainian voices. So I listen to the BBC World Service every morning. For the past three weeks, I have learned more about Ukraine than I've ever, ever known before. And um, uh, I think this is, is indeed astonishing, Karel. And uh, actually, John, I was thinking as editor of H Ukraine, I'm wondering if you've seen a huge bump in visitors to your site. Um, but actually, I'll ask you that and then get you to continue. Yeah, Karel, you mentioned fellow Europeans, and this has also been something that has really intrigued me, particularly in light of the way that Hertian was describing Syria and Afghanistan, and these are also spaces of Russian aggression, and yet have perhaps not received the same amount of solidarity. This is a point students have made to me as well. And this takes nothing away from Ukraine, I think. And so I want to focus on Ukraine. I want to focus on the solidarity and the heroism. But I've also been really struck by the kind of 
this is these are Europeans, this is our solidarity, this is our moment and and the and I'm trying to figure out how to live with that tension. I don't know. Maybe John you can speak to this and help give some perspective. I don't know. Sure. Uh let me start with your original comment on H Ukraine, uh which uh you know serves a really important role, I think, um, but a minimal one in the sense that we promote kind of academic and scholarly material on Ukraine. And it's an intervention that we made part of the larger HNET platform, which, you know, you can follow all kinds of different networks. And I'm glad we started in 2019 when we did. And you're right. Uh, to be honest with you, I haven't checked our numbers because I've been busy with refugees here. Uh, and it's really been the furthest thing from my mind. My team has really been kind of taking care of the, the academic side, which to me right now uh, has kind of been pushed to the side for the moment. But look, uh, if, if our if our Twitter account says anything, if the amount of subscribers I've seen wanting to be a part of our network says anything, then people have a dramatic interest, a dramatic increase in understanding Ukraine. And one thing we're trying to do is, is to make scholarly and intellectual arguments and um, books and articles and interviews accessible to the general public as well. We want people to understand Ukraine and understand, uh, I think, really, most importantly for me, that Ukraine isn't new to a lot of people. The media might make it seem this way. Uh, my biggest criticism right now is that, and I, I, let's not call it a criticism, but perhaps a worry or an apprehension I have, is Ukraine is on people's maps right now. They're able to see where it is, and people are able to point this out, and it's getting on what I call people's mental maps which is something that this, it's not always true. I mean, it happens in kind of these these moments, right? Maybe in 2004 during the Orange Revolution or during Maidan, people started to, to pay attention to what's happening. But I worry that for the moment, this is popular, but that it will fade again. And this is something that's a worry that's down the road. But, you know, I, I, I am also critical too of, there are <laughs> certainly, let's call them opportunists that have been able to jump in in this moment and claim expertise on this area. Um, and this is a this is something that I I, I don't know I, I'm conflicted and I'd be curious to hear what you know everyone else has to say but I want people to be involved I want people to join the conversations we all need to be having this this is a human problem this is a world problem uh, I, I'm in other parts of Europe and you know I have to go back to the United States soon and they're feeling the effects there if we look at the immigration visa applications that are going on right now and the reverberations of what's happening. This is not just a Ukrainian issue, and this is not a border issue alone. So I'm wary of people that are making careers off of moments in Ukrainian history for their own gain. Uh, but I, I also think that this is a good reminder and kind of what I think Carl was getting to of there might be some positive outcomes for this. Of It might re, you know, reaffirm the work on Ukraine that's been done by people who have been working on Ukraine for a long time and who consider themselves, perhaps I consider myself a historian of modern Europe, but with a focus on Ukraine. So I've always seen Ukraine as part of Europe as well, not just Soviet, not just, you know, an, an imperial leftover, right? Not a Soviet leftover, not part of the hangover. Um, they're entangled, right? The histories of these countries are always entangled, but um, Ukraine's entangled to the West as well, not just the East. And so I think that this is a moment where we really have to do our best to make Ukraine accessible to folks, but in a way that doesn't sell it short of its complex and intertwined history. And people need to be okay with that, right? And Ukraine has the same problems that any other democracy in any other country has. Uh, and some of these problems have been used against that country for much of its history. But I think, uh, you know, it's our job, at least I feel my job, to promote the good work of people like Ola and Carol and other folks that are that have been studying this, and myself included, since um, since I was an undergraduate, when I heard one lecture on the whole of the Mor, and I've, I've been working on Ukraine ever since. And, you know, there are people that genuinely care about that. And, um, I, and I know Ukrainians care about that, too. I have... As you might be able to tell, I'm in the bathroom of my apartment, and there's a reason for this. Um, I, I've turned over my apartment to kind of a refugee welcome center. And so refugees are staying with me. They're friends. They come from the east of Ukraine. Um, they speak Ukrainian, right? These divides of east-west language policies are nonsense. Uh, it's much more complex than the media will have you believe. Uh, Sergei Zhardan, who is probably one of the most prominent Ukrainian poets and public thinkers, um, he published yesterday an essay, I think it was on Eurozine, and basically the essay was that, you know, this war is the end of the myth about great Russian humanitarian culture. You know, great Russian humanitarian culture and Dostoevsky are dead under the rubble of, you know, Kharkiv, 
for instance, which is a Russian-speaking country, and you know, and it's like the Russian culture is now living Ukraine the same way as the Russian ship, and probably everybody knows what are we talking about, this meme about the Russian ship. And the second takeout, I think, what we should stop doing, like the media and many other people, is talking about Ukraine as post-Soviet state. No one talks about Poland as post-Soviet state, no one talks about Baltics as post-Soviet state. Ukraine is squarely geographically in Europe, you know. So we have to talk about that, that you, Ukraine is in Europe. It's a, you know, it's a historical and geographical fact. And then we somehow have to learn to kind of abandon this narrative that Ukraine belongs to the sphere of interest of Russia, because this is what impeded Ukraine for a very long time. I think uh, Olya made uh, the best quote uh, that I will remember from this con conversation is that Ukraine is not longer post-Soviet. I think Russia is still post-Soviet. Um, but what I really find interesting, there are big differences. Uh, let's remember that I think in 2014-15 or something, we had the EU referendum uh, in the Netherlands where, where the, ask, the question was asked, can Ukraine become part of, of Europe? And the question was no, because we didn't see them as Europe. So it was a, this traditional 19th century image of this, the Slavic Oriental uh, that is different. So that has, that has definitely changed. And also linguistically, something interesting is going on since the 1990s. I would say like in the past, we would have been talking about the Ukraine. And now we're talking about Ukraine. And there's, if you translate that into Russia, Russian, it's now Ukraine or Ukraine. And that's very important uh, shift because the Ukraine, Vruk Ukraine, would signal a region, a cultural region, and, and not now Ukraine. Uh, now Ukraine would signal a region, and now we're saying uh, uh, Ukraine. So we are uh, uh, describing it as a nation, as a country, not anymore as a region that is in this uh, in the sphere of influence of Moscow. And if you uh, look to the, the Russian media, there it's still now Ukraine, the, the region. So it, it's really interesting to see that in, in the West, but also in other parts of Europe and the world, we're not talking about the, Europe, the Ukraine anymore, we're talking about Ukraine. It's this very stupid linguistic difference, but it makes, it makes a lot of, it makes a, a huge impact. Language matters. The way you talk about people matters. So thank you for that, Hetian. And I wondered if any of you had observed that media emphasis on oh they they are civilized just and, and who is the they and who is the us here this is also a point of language and can ukrainians be taken on their own terms not on whether we should help them because they're european i i, I found the reporting and still find the reporting here in the netherlands uh, pretty good what i think we should take into consideration is the neighbors so you got Poland in the EU who rightly sense Baltic states that they might be next. I mean, that was a very huge and still is a big factor uh, in alerting other Europeans of the dangers and what is at stake here. Uh, I, I totally see that there are some injustices that, that, for instance, students of African descent at the border moving west are held back in some ways. Um, it happens further west too, you know, uh, Ukrainians trying to go to the UK, uh, kept at Calais for outrageous long periods. I don't see it. I don't think a lot of people, just consumers of the media, if they even exist, uh, regular consumers, think in these terms like, oh, wow, they're really civilized. I mean, I think they more think like, I like this president. I like the way they try to fight back. Also in North America, I, I gather from the media that a lot of military are quite impressed by this president who refuses to flee. Let's put it bluntly. I mean, isn't it always the standard that with the slightest danger, a leader is supposed to be shifted aside to safety? And here you have a guy who says, no, give me weapons. I mean, these are stories. So I think it's not so much the civilization that's discovered or the civilizedness, but the bravery and the danger to oneself. That's, those two factors, in my opinion, were a little bit and still are a little bit more important. Yeah, I agree with everything that Carl's saying. And I usually consume more media than I do right now. I've been busy, so I'm seeing just European media only uh, and, and that of, of Ukraine as well. But when I was in Ukraine, actually, and you come across something that resonates with me about this point that you're making is... Um, 
for the first time ever, uh, I started to hear more English in the city of Kyiv. And you start to come across these student groups that are now, instead of going to St. Petersburg or Moscow, or, or maybe are doing that, but they're including Ukraine into their tours uh, of study abroad to study Russian or Ukrainian. And people are discovering Ukraine for themselves. And I, I say this because I think that a lot of the misinterpretations of the media come from people who just haven't spent significant time there. And anybody who has understands that Ukraine, you cannot talk about Ukraine as the other or some place that needs to be civilized. Um, and I think in a bigger capacity right now, this is a litmus test for the West of how well they can actually listen to Ukrainians and understand how they want to be perceived um, rather than how we want to write about them in the news or in catchy headlines, right? Um, clickbait, as they call it. So I, I, do, I do see these things at play a little bit. And, you know, just to touch on your point, too, about um, issues with race at the border, let's also remember that um, race in Ukraine is not a new thing either. Um, it's a multi-ethnic, multi-racial country. Afro-Ukrainians exist. There are, you know, there are lots of different different groups there, and not just international students. The way the media has sold this is that there are only international students there, but there are plenty and great people of, you know, of, of all different backgrounds that live in Ukraine. Um, and, you know, I lived in Lviv for a while and got to know a West African population there pretty well. There are books that have been written about this since, you know, the early, two, uh, let's say 2008, 2010, around there. So um, this is not to take away from the issues that are occurring with race and stuff on the border right now. There are issues, no doubt. But um, let's also remember that, you know, I think this comes from not understanding Ukraine well and having spent time there. Uh, there are lots of people from various backgrounds that inhabit Ukraine. Uh, and, and we need to also understand that perspective and hear their voices as well. And I think in that spirit of like active listening and trying to learn, I would love you all just to say uh, sort of one thing you wish people knew about Ukraine. And we will also be posting for our listeners uh, on our website links to practical ways to assist. I guess I'll go for it. I don't know a whole lot about Ukraine. I've only been there three or four times. But I can only echo what John said. You have, you have to have been stuck on the bridge of Kherson to really know how what Ukraine is all about and everyday life. Um, but my message would also be um, um, this is a, a war between the Putin regime and, and Ukraine. Uh, let's also uh, not lose track of uh, Russian population. It is true uh, that a lot of people believe uh, the messages, but I think subconsciously they are also very aware of what, what is going on. Agree fully with all the sanctions uh, there are. Also, cutting all the ties with the universities. This is necessary. I've been in a Russian university. They do drilling, uh, drills, drill exercises with wooden Kalashnikovs in the hallway. So it's it's not the, the nicest partner to have. Um, but uh, let's keep also our eye on the Russian media uh, to gain and to to keep on understanding that very complex nation. I think it's a good idea to speak with people and and go out in the street i take this from timothy snyder i mean he says rightly so that you know you can do all you want on social media but uh being there and having a taking part in a demonstration or some kind of activity is more influential in the long run and then of course you might encounter some refugees you know listen to them and certainly keep your politicians your leaders uh on the right track, you know, they might become slippery in a couple of months, years. You know, we have to support those who are quite principled here. This is one of the nice things about the current period that we, there has been these swift actions, but uh, there will be pressure to loosen the ties, to loosen the the sanctions and the, the pressure on these, uh, these terrible people. Tell them to keep doing it. I mean, they need to know that there are people who support that. Um, I'm hoping that what would stay with people is the courage of Ukrainian people. You know, I don't mean it in a cheesy way, but, you know, when I see this unarmed civilians talking tanks, you know, and there are mothers who stay behind because they say this is our land, we don't want to leave, you know. So there are so many people to make this tiny acts of courage, and I think what has been lacking in NATO, in the EU, even in the US, we're, we're tremendously appreciative of what has been done in the last few weeks. 
But question is, if it has, if it was done in 2014, things would have been different. So I think there are some steps that are Western governments are afraid of taking, but I think the sooner they take them, the sooner this might end and with less victims. I mean, for me, it's a Putin's assault on the world order based on rules. It's about rules, you know. Ukraine didn't break any rules. I, I, don't, I, I probably don't have that much courage, but I think this courage is what should stay with people and that should inspire the actions of the international community. What I want to reiterate to listeners is um, Ukraine is, is more than a war zone. It's a beautiful country with its own beautiful language and culture. And when this, when this war is over, uh, I encourage people to, to travel there, see it for themselves. Don't just take the media accounts. Um, go and see it. Go and, go and visit the beautiful sites. Um, hopefully many of them remain. Uh, that you know, This is a worry of ours. But Ukrainians are all around the world already. And many, you know, they're across Europe and in the United States. And the joke is Ukrainians are everywhere. And it's sort of true. They are. But this, this war is moving people and you're going to, you know, you're going to encounter them. And so I agree with Carol too. have conversations with them, talk with them, understand their perspective. Uh, and I think you'll realize that Ukraine is really not so far away from you um, in mental or physical capacity. Uh, and I think that will help to, to understand that, you know, the bridges you've built, people, the bridges that people have built up to, to put Ukraine further away from themselves, I think will be shortened. And if anything, this war will teach us um, we're, all, we're all a little bit the same uh, and maybe not as different as we all think. So I'll leave it there. And with that, we'll leave it too. So we'd really like to thank our guests, Olya Klamenko, John Vsteteka, Karel Berkov, and Hertian Pletz. We are extremely grateful for their time and for sharing their insights with us. To our listeners, we hope this episode has helped you understand Ukraine a little more. You can check out in the information box ways to help. There are links to charities, refugee centers, and you can find more information about what is going on there, about Ukraine's rich history and uh, some of the background information that we've discussed today. Please join us for part two of this episode where we speak to Maria Boba, a Ukrainian living in the Netherlands, to hear her perspective, to understand more about the reality of the invasion and how it's affecting her. Thank you for joining us on this special and timely episode. We hope you're keeping safe and we'll see you for the next one. I'm Rachel Gillette. You've been listening to Unsettling Knowledge Podcast at Utrecht University. Thank you to Frank Gerritz, Melina Yelanki, and Sarah Kremen for editorial help. And we look forward to meeting you again on our next podcast.